Righto, money mine. It's part two with the koala boys. Jesus, there's a bloody whirlwind of talking journey in this, but what do we go here? B, a lot about BHP, BHP MA. Copper, tier oh. one sort of stuff. We got into actually, we got into some shareholder activism and incentives. Oh, yeah. Got a, got a bit, White Haven, a bit that, punchy that, at that, that point. Come it was out good of, fun. Yeah, that's had funny. To, Not physically about, punchy. Yeah. Had to talk about White Haven. We had a, a good underrated, overrated section as well, you know. Mm. And yeah. a bit of the koala's life in the investment. Uh, yeah, as a junior world. investment banker. On the hamster wheel. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to know what people think of this one. I am. Hey, leave a comment. Leave a comment. Let's Flick know. us a message. That's it. Bob, it, Probably don't pop in for a beer because, geez, we're having a lot of, um, <laughs> of pop-ins at the moment. But we're hey, we're a bit get, of work occasionally. <laughs> we're, we're getting into the Christmas period and, geez, it's great. Any, <laughs> soon as someone walks in, oh, beauty, let's have a beer. That's it. Right, boys. Matty, we've got some toys from, from one of our oh, most we, recent beer visits. Yeah, I know. Bloody, mate, if you want to rock up for a beer visit, either bring beer or toys. Yeah. <laughs> These ones are great. They're not even just plasticky ones. It's They're, the bloody the, yeah. and the, the orange machines that I like. Bloody, even got some Sandvik battery charges as well. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Love, love your work. Is love your wicked? work. Shout out to Phil for dropping them off. Bloody legend. Absolutely wicked. I broke a typical jumbo operator. I broke it in the first five <laughs> seconds too, but I've got it back yeah, together. I'll show you boys how this thing works. <laughs> have, a, have a look at it. Uh, right. You broke it. You know what you should do when you break it? Just call KCA. Call KCA. Oh, oh <laughs> trap. Mate, speaking of KCA and underground mining, I thought we'd run a bit of a trivia today. See if you two bloody finance nerds have been listening to the KCA ads. Oh, you're going to test me here. If right. You, you, you two have to rattle off, off the top of your head, what equipment does KCA supply to hire out to the mining industry. Normets, ITs. Normets. And what yep. it's specific on the Normets, Trav? Literally no idea, but um, they got the flatbed, <laughs> the flatbed stores truck. What's the other Normet? The Charmec. The Charmec. That's what they used to the charge. charge up. Yeah, yep. right. Yep. So we've got them. What, what was they the had, other one you said? So they had jumbos as well as people, mate. No, they've got they haven't got jumbos, but they've got the person to go on a jumbo. Yeah. Yep, they don't I have jumbos. Yeah. They got one of them in front yeah, of they got they got trucks. they got boggers as well. Oh, I don't know if they got boggers. they got ITs. Remember the ITs, little yep. the man with the big basket on the yep. front? I think they got LVs as well. Got yep. LVs? Yeah. I think they um, they also just have everything. They're just yep. everything. <laughs> they got water trucks, stores trucks. Uh, they got four-wheel drive buses. They do. Like they've got it all. They've got it. When you rattle it off like that. Just even JD throwing in things that they don't have. <laughs> it's just like, what an offering. They got a nice guy called Adam. <laughs> Isn't he a beautiful bloke? He's a gay guy. Mate, would you say a great, what do you say? He's a great, great guy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you said something else there. That's a bit punchy in great, this modern world. Great guy. Great guy. Great with a T. <laughs> mate, good for a uh, good for a long lunch too. Yeah. Wow, that was a good, uh, ads if you're listening, mate, would you for another long lunch? Especially going into the Christmas season, mate. But yeah, but as as we said, shitload of machinery on hire and a shitload of people to operate the machinery. Or look, if you're looking to even get a person on site to do nothing, they can give you <laughs> one of them too and make money out of it. It's a great deal for KCA. Just call so, KCA. Just call KCA. That's taken off too. Just sure has. Have you had any domestic uh, breakages in your kitchens, boys? Oh, I did. Any call KCA I moments? Mate. I got a story for you. I'll, I'll be quick. Rip it, Trav. Opened the fridge the other morning. 
like just open the fridge. And what do you do when you open the fridge, mate? Bloody bro, just put a, an open wine glass, half full of wine, right in the like the where where you put the in the door. It just the... flung straight out and smashed <laughs> everywhere. I wish I called KCA right now. Oh, that was a cool talk about a cool KCA moment. Peace off. <laughs> Love you, <laughs> right, boys. Let's rip part two with the koala. That's about all there is to say on that. Here we go. <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> I do think the the counterpoint to your your thesis, in some ways, and heck, I've got literally zero visibility or capability to assess how real DLE is or could be. I also assume you have zero capability to assess how real DLE could be as well. And what strikes me about your confidence in saying it's thirty years away or whatever is, um, like you've got Exxon, like one of the world's largest oil majors throwing money at it now so how how do you how do you have such confidence that um that you know with all of exxon's capital there won't be a breakthrough that kind of changes the shape of that cost curve in a in a pretty material way five six years ago when exxon would do commercials on tv and i believe this was because they're a sponsor of the masters golf tournament they weren't talking about the oil and energy security they were providing america they were talking about the algae they were focused on for biofuels and renewable fuels. Guys, how much P&L do you think the algae renewable business gives to Exxon? These are call options. And I think what Exxon's doing in Arkansas is they're trying to say we have all this we, – we, we're trying to innovate. And if we can find a way to crack the cost curve – and this is what innovation is. Can you crack the cost curve? And I think this is – Innovation is a scary thing for us because it can reset things and all the sunk capital can be for naught. That's why innovations are so unique and so rare. I mean, automated trains in the Pilbara for Rio, it's really just helped them keep costs in place. It actually didn't make things cheaper. You have to innovate anyway as a mining company just to hold serve. I think what Exxon's trying to do is see if they can actually reset things. But I don't see Exxon turning around and going, they're going to see, can we do this? is that this is in the R&D exploration scope of things. If they can do it, great. They have IP. They'll then go around and they'll build a lithium business. Um, if they can't do it, do I see them buying a stake in Greenbushes or Pilgangora? No. It, but for them, it's they can find a way to innovate and create a unique position in 21st century energy. That's part of their job as a diversified. I I just think that if DLE is going to work, show me where show me where on an asset it works once. Then take it to three or four other assets and show me that this is a broadly applicable technology. Don't show if this is this maybe it works on one asset, but it's very asset specific and you got to spend years tinkering with it to get it right for the uniqueness of each brine and orbite because all these things are not identical. Like from an Excel spreadsheet model, you're like, oh, is that 58% iron or 65% iron? But, you know, steel mill cares about the FOSS. They care about silica. They care about alumina. There's all these little things that as investors, we don't really think about unless you really want to nerd out on this and go talk to the people who actually hold this stuff and feed it into a furnace every day. I, I mean, look, but when's the last time mining actually had a truly groundbreaking innovation? I would argue it's probably when they figured out they could do bigger trucks and unlock all these porphyries in the Andes. Well, I mean, you gave the analogy with nickel there and look what's happened to the, the cost curve recently mm-hmm. in, in Indonesia and nickel. That 
you know, could be what the DLE impact could look like if, if that were to, to come through. And, you know, the, the guys at Wailu right now, they'll be in a bit of a in a bit of a tough spot given the acquisitions they've made, you know, on the on the receiving end. That's something it could look like, right? If it were to happen. Yeah, and uh twenty five, thirty years for the sake of humanity, I hope we continue to innovate and find ways to reset the cost curves and shake things up every now and again. I think that's that's part of this. It's just you tell me DLE someone's gonna crack the DLE code in twenty forty, sitting here in twenty twenty three, given valuations that's not really my concern today. I just thought of the irony of HPOWs biting Twiggy in the butt again. He <laughs> can't get away from it, can he? Well, to the point about cost curves earlier, um, Glencore three or four years ago in their analyst day had this great thing about if carbon pricing came into the world. And they said they had this great thing where they used to go like nickel, like the 75th or 90th percentile of the cost curve, if you actually like carbon priced it all, would go up like 90%. So think about it, aluminum, China building out half the supply stack over 10 years, all fire, all coal fire fired anyway. That flattened the aluminum cost curve. Well, Indonesia, if it's flattening the nickel cost curve, well, what's going to save everyone would be like if you actually got something like border carbon limitations that just said that's coal fire powered out of Indonesia, which is like this little debate to have about would consumers pay for this? Are producers of goods going to pay this so then they can market their stuff as green so they can charge a higher price? So it's not really the consumer paying, but it's through like a, a luxury uh, projecting. I think this is well, the right yeah. time to talk about metal price bifurcation. We've uh, we've spoken about it a couple of times with, with previous guests on the show. There seems to be varying uh, opinions out there, but I mean, the, the fact is that it hasn't really eventuated yet in the in the mining space. We've seen glimpses of it in alumina for, you know, lower carbon-intensive uh, production facilities. To start with, I mean, I saw you tweet about this not too long ago. What are your thoughts on the, the metal price bifurcation theory or thesis? Well, you talked to a younger version of me in 2014, 2015, I would have known that Fortescue has lower quality iron ore, but I wouldn't have not known what a pellet was, what a lump was, or what 65 is. Um, so we're already kind of seeing it in value and use in the intermediate bulk commodities. And like refined copper is not copper concentrate. And there's different value propositions in various copper concentrates and how it all mixes together. Um, I think where there's clear value and use, you're already seeing it. So using the iron ore metaphor, or people care about iron penalties and spodumene concentrates. Um, where there's clear value in use, it's being priced in. It's question is, is this going to carry through the um, through the value chain? And I think Rio, when they did a recent site visit to the Pilbara, they talked about in the east, you're having more blast furnaces, more coal plants built. There's definitely about a focus on development, not on the carbon intensity of metal consumption. Well, if I can build a Tesla in Shanghai and ship it to Europe, which when I was in Paris recently, a fund manager told me 90% of the Teslas in Europe are coming right now from the Shanghai factory. I mean, we really want to get flippant about it. The carbon intensity there. And I don't care if someone says I have 
bought solar panels or I've bought offsets or there's the grid is the grid. You can sit there and say, I built a solar pan. I built a solar farm that matches my uh, factory's output. That's all well and good. And on the spreadsheet, you can say you've, you've done your part, but the grid's the grid. Um, so the question is, how are we going to sort solid? Can we get this coordinated? Are consumers going to pay more for it? Uh, I don't know, but until there's actually clear economic rationale or clear incentives, whether that's socially or financial or value, I'm not convinced we're going to see this bifurcation. I mean, the other the other take could be that it's government enforced. I mean, on the point of electric vehicles going into Europe, you already see, I think, 27.5% import taxes into, into America. I think it's at 10% going into into Europe, but that's another way it could play out, right? You just see yeah. these countries ramp up the Carbon equalization the, at the border. The, the tariffs and all those sorts of things. You, you, had, a, you had a tweet on, on this topic which sort of spoke to, I think, one of our existing um, uh, like Im- implications of a potential world where there's price bifurcation, and that's that a lot of undeveloped projects which, you know, you previously put a line through because the capex was too high, you know, IRR's too low, all of a sudden... You know, Alcoa is a real business again. All of a sudden, <laughs> if Chinese aluminum's taxed for carbon, deep, deep in the money options, I think is what you described a lot of these projects or companies as. What do you think? It, what do you think? Well, they'll of, go from they'll go from these out of the money. Like, is this thing going to die in six months or six years? But you don't see a terminal value; you just see this inevitable ending. To all of a sudden, oh my god, this thing just went from fourth quartile to second quartile, real quick. Yeah. yeah. Do you think this is a, a a macro bet that you're like intrigued in in allocating towards, or do you think like you actually need to see real signs of of bifurcation flowing through to markets before you you get excited about some of the the prospects of these um, currently priced out of the money options actually being in the money? I'm very intrigued by it in existing situations where I'm getting the option for free. Mm. So that's one very important question is. Am I ready to – I have a couple things where in the portfolio that if there was something like this, uh, you might never see me again, <laughs> very seriously. Um, but that's neither – that's not for discussion now. But I think in the broader sense, I'm not going to go buy into something right now and go, that's the play. I mean – but any, I think any nickel sulfide you're looking at right now or anything in aluminum, you're kind of implicitly taking that bet. You're just hoping that you have a long enough runway. And who knows, maybe there's a realization that maybe we don't want all of our nickel coming out of Indonesia and Russia and we don't want all our aluminum coming out of China and things just kind of – eventually these things pop up. We'll, we'll see. You don't see me sitting here going, there's some great – grand play to this, but yeah, you can find an embedded free option. That's interesting. I just don't want to pay for it right now. Tie tie this price bifurcation back into lithium a bit. Do you think once this supply starts coming, like China will take bloody any lithium, they've got more downstream capacity than the lithium they can put in it. They're building refineries in every province, left, right, center. They're looking at you guys and saying, oh, God, Give great. We've seen, we've seen this playbook before. 
put it in the boat, send it over. It doesn't make sense to refine it in WA. The steel mills don't exist anymore. We'll take it. We'll refine it. We'll accept the fact that we sometimes make some money. Sometimes we won't make some money, but you know what we'll have? We'll have the product. So how do you think, is there going to be any bifurcation applied to, I know it's like, it, it is different prices per percentage, but if you go to like your green bushes, high quality spodumene versus 3.6% spod coming out of Mount Marion, when the supply catches up, do you think that's all going to change? They won't be desperately taking that lower quality product? I think in boom times, spreads for quality blowout. Because ironically, you say, do I want to put a 4% product into my plant or do I want to put a 6% product into my plant? Well, 3.6 last quarter for so, me. So if I'm sitting there and I care about, and it, again, this is the steel and iron ore situation. When the steel mills are making money and they really just want to maximize throughput, they want to put the highest quality iron mix, highest grade through their steel mill. When they're not making money, but they don't want to shut down the furnace, they just want to go into like hibernation, they'll take the 58. So when times are booming, spreads blow. We see this in coking coal. We see this in iron ore. We'll see this in anything with a spread in values. But when everyone's not making money and you just kind of are treading water, do you really give a crap if you put a 58 or a 62 through the mill? No, that's why the quality stuff should trade at a higher multiple because when times are good, you're just going to make an ungodly more amount of money. Whereas when times are bad, like you'll collapse back down, but you're going to catch those peaks so much more because again, are you taking Twiggy's product or are you taking Vale's product if you're making $200 a ton on steel right now? Cool. I want to... Um maybe pivot a little bit to a, a dear topic of mine and uh, that's shareholder activism. Here we go. <laughs> uh, when are you two going to start arguing, by the way? <laughs> is a, buddy, this is no give, good for me. Give me one more beer and change the topic to Patriot. Skull. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to weave in. Let's have a talk about North American nah, lithium. Nah, we'll, go to, we'll go to shareholder activism where I love talking about it. Ah, uh, sweet. So I recall, I recall reading a tweet of yours back in August where you toyed with the idea of using, um, using I guess you're following in a, in a shareholder activist campaign. And, um, and I think like activism looks a lot different today than it used to. Heck, we covered an activist campaign that sort of fell flat on its feet um, over at ABZ on, uh, on Friday. Like how has your thinking evolved on this front using the, you know, the audience and the, the influence you've built up for shareholder activism? I think there are a lot of situations in the mining industry where an activist lens and not a we are just – we just want the stock to do well. But there are places where I think a lot – a little refocusing where it's not about the lifestyle. It's not about collecting the check just for the sake of, uh, you know, one day it will come fine. I mean – Looking out for shareholders, maximizing value for all stakeholders, this industry still has not grown up completely. I mean the fact that a bunch of 30-somethings are actually going to be listened to yeah, by I a bunch of people in the industry. Like in most other sectors, unless we all had billion-dollar exits, everybody would be like, who the fuck are you guys? 
JD's only allowed just been allowed to start drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> so look, look, I'll one of the ones that I've been I that was someone came to me when I was in Brisbane and said, "Hey, take a look at this." Click, 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 and I kind of looked at him like, "All right, twenty million dollar company, but like, you know, there was clearly like a lot of value there, and you know, not going to talk say the name here, but." Uh, something that I'm going to be spending some work on. Um, and I think that you don't necessarily have to have a 10% position. I think if you can have a couple percent or even half percent of position, uh, the big question is, is it worth your time? And I think a good example there is if you know the big shareholders, you know the people that at the end of the day, if, when you have these 9.98% or 19.9 guys, you got to kind of look at them and go, are you going to, are you going to back me? Is that is that share you're talking about? Is that going up already, or hmm? the one, the specific one you're talking? about? I don't own any of it yet. <laughs> That's why I'm not talking about it. <laughs> what you just let me? We'll just chat about that later. <laughs> off here. But I think the uh, but I think a couple things that I think are different that I think that management teams need to understand is that what's actually beautiful about an activist is that you should take take a step back and unless it's really about you as a person, you shouldn't take it personally because what an activist can do is highlight all the potential in your business, all the things that could be better that you and your IR really cannot. Because someone coming out as an investor, like, this is what we see. This is our forecast. This is what we're thinking about. You as a CEO with all the regulations today, you can't really do that. Um, so you can, you should really look at an activist and say, okay, this is going to distract me a little bit. I'm going to have to justify my strategy, but I should be open to input. But I should actually sit there and be like, people are going to learn more about my business or my project then, frankly, even I can talk about. I think in reality, the gatekeepers to creating influence as an activist are not. It's not because, like you don't, you can't start with the assumption that management care about the business and how it's received. They actually care about the salary. <laughs> and board What's directors it, uh, care about. Tell me the incentives. The tell me yeah. the incentives, and, that's and I'll the, tell you the outcomes. That's the challenge as an activist is overcoming that. Yeah, and do the shareholders look at at the end of the day? If I was to do some activist campaigns, I think this is coming from my background. If I lost, but the stock's up 50% and there's a clear sense of where the company can go better, I would rather lose in an activist campaign and have the stock up 50% because people understand things better about the business than win because management screwed something up and we're down 20%. It's just, oh my God, anyone but this, anything but this. Um, if there's a dominant shareholder who doesn't control the company, but makes lose it, but makes winning an activist campaign difficult, I think there's still moral victories in if every other shareholder, the majority of the plurality, vote in favor, because it sends a message of concern, and unless that shareholder has no shame, or that management team has no shame, it reflects a sign that you have to fix things. Um, but at the end of the day, it really kind of comes down to knowing who the shareholders are. And if they, if the top three shareholders are unhappy and they're like, we are open to hearing new ideas, there's a case for it. If they say we are content, then probably not worth the stress and the effort. The moral victory is a, a nice idea, but I mean, Whitehaven comes to mind and 
they had shareholders, you know, agitate. Most recently, Bell Rock were quite upset. But even going back two years, mm-hmm. they got their first strike against the REM report. Nothing really changed. They get, you know, this, the second year and they don't get a strike. They're all good. And then a year later, they, they get another strike. Like, you know, most investors aren't in it for the, the moral victories. So... What's the Whitehaven stock price today? Six bucks, I eighty, think, seven bucks. I don't think that was the comment. <laughs> no, it's just the question, and I, you, you see where I'm going with this, Travis. I, I think it's a stupid line of questioning. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Well, it, it's, and I think this is coming from where I come from versus the Australian mindset. Um, a company that I think through buying back twenty percent of its shares, um. And delevering the company and creating all this optionality that they're in a position where they were basically the only choice um, has created, even on the 800 instead of the billion shares outstanding, let's call it two, three bucks of value. 2.4 billion of value. Are we really going to get annoyed about a $10 million worth of bonuses when if a hedge fund manager outperforms its index, outperforms his benchmark or his high watermark, he gets 20% of the PNL. I mean, it's just a, uh, I'm not concerned about someone getting paid well for doing a good job. Now, also in the sector, coal price, commodity prices help. So you got to look through it all. And it's like, what are the big five, 10 decisions you have to make every year? It did more than help. <laughs> it, it was the reason. Well, that's why we're in this business. It's a, uh, one or two years can make up can can for, reset the average for that's a what's ten years. Happened with Whitehaven and Pilbara Minerals and yeah. things like that. One or two years. I think a lot of the like the performance like stuff on Whitehaven gets a bit missed, and people try to compare things using the wrong time scale, or mm-hmm. you know, like the Yemeni overhang was there forever. You've got to measure relative performance way back when, and people talk about the merit of the deal, and they try and argue that it was um, that they try to justify. What, what's clearly misaligned incentives, and I'll say that explicitly, clearly misaligned incentives. If you can, if you can hack your way through your performance outcomes by doing M&A at any price, you have misalignment. You showed me before. You told me before, show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome, right? Like, it was so funny when we were in Sydney, we were at the, um, the pub, and I was having this conversation with these coal financiers. And I was agreed with like them on 99% of stuff, but they were defending Paul Flynn's SIPs out of a stupid rationale that, um, that, that, you know, it made sense, blah, 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 good deal, this and that. And it was just a bizarre conversation to have with intelligent people who defend something that you can clearly point to and say, if you could hack it by doing something that is clearly detrimental to shareholders if you paid a stupid price. I'm not saying they paid a stupid price, right? But it's a it's a bizarre perspective to have to have these conversations with intelligent people who defend what's clearly misalignment. I think the bigger I think the way we'll kind of look at this is in three to four years after the BHP deferrals are done, we're gonna kind of be able to look at that deal and say, was that a good deal or not? And if it turns out it's a good deal, because I, I think, Travis, what you're kind of going towards here is total shareholder return kind of should 
in a in a theoretical sense, it should be the be all end all. But then you got to factor in safety, and you want to think about you you want to think about more than just the share price that year because your job as a manager, risk adjusted return. Yeah, your job as a manager of these companies is you're really making these you're making capital allocation decisions for the year, but you're also making these major 10, 20 year consequential decisions, and how you finance them also determines the duration on which you should be judged on them and the IRR. But I think, look, if we're going to look back in three or four years and Blackwater and Donny acquisition are either going to have been absolute home runs, in which case the share price of Whitehaven's, let's use for speculators, 250 a share, free cash flow. Like we're probably looking at them guessing. Also, coal's probably a little more in vogue because everyone's going to be jealous of how much money the shareholders have made at that point. We're looking at an Aussie $20 stock. Um, is anyone going to be complaining about Paul's decision-making then? Like in a weird way, it, it, and, if, and if it's a bad deal, I mean there will be consequences. <laughs> Simple as that. I think but what's interesting think is – I think we're arguing different points. Yeah, right? I think they're, they're too – Like yeah, I would much different. rather have the certainty of owning Whitehaven knowing that Paul is on my team. When you look at those incentives, you're actually not sure. How many shares does he own still? Uh, way less than his fucking one signed. <laughs> what was that? That was a third of his? That was a third of his? Way more. Stake? No, no, no. He yeah. sold way more. He, Is I it think, like one? I think he's owned like, I could be wrong, but like Ballpark sold like 7 million, owns 1 million. Yeah. I thought I had 1 million in Did my Did you include his options and RCs yeah, and that? Yeah. This is like just real shares that he's, uh, you know, owned and sold over time. Don't have a computer in front of me, but my numbers were, my numbers from when I looked at this a while ago were different. Because yeah. he sold a bunch at it was like Aussie nine bucks. Yeah, he sold a bunch plenty awesome. of times. <laughs> hey, you know what? You you get part of being a manager is you. Uh, if your if your question is why isn't Paul bought himself on market and done an insider buy instead of just getting shares as part of his compensation, I think that's a very interesting conversation to have. Is I think if you have the window open, one way you can send a very strong message. Um, if the window's open is, yeah, you buy some shares as a director, as a chairman, as a CEO, if you're, if the window's open, that's one way to kind of look at the market and go, you Muppets. How often I, is the window open? It's not well, too much, is it? I think they've got, you know, ample, you've got the obvious Depends on big the blocks pre-quarterlies yeah. and stuff, but yeah. they've got, they've got time. Well, let's just use Whitehaven as the example, um, they couldn't buy back stock for the production report. So you lose six weeks there. I think I did the math once and it's like there's 252 trading days in the year if you used New York. Um, you lost probably six weeks, six weeks. Uh, so let's go, And then results take longer in the half years. Yeah, you probably have like 180 days or so. And then, like, if you're looking at something strategic like m and I mean, you know, in hindsight, could you really be buying back stock if you're negotiating a deal with, uh, with BHP? It's not like the U.S. where you can hand a bunch of money to a Morgan Stanley or Goldman and say, put this on autopilot. Like, these are, like, clearly, I think, in Australia, the buybacks aren't as common. But it seems to me, like, there's really accountability for the decision every single day. Yeah, and I, th- I think, like even captured in the TSR debate is like risk adjusted returns. Like the thing with, with Whitehaven now, it's like, if you are 
you know, bullish call and there's good reason to be and all that sort of stuff, then f- sure, it looks great because it's fucking levered and it's geared and whew, that juices equity returns. But there's no appreciation in that sort of, you know, reflection five years from now if um, if on a risk-adjusted basis you had a run of Monte Carlo, whatever, right? Like do you have durability throughout the cycle? And like maybe four out of five cycles they do, but one in five, you know, the gearing actually bites you in the butt. And, and I think like... You know, the the activist campaign, like, I don't think that Balrock's motivations were purely transparent with the public and all that's coming out in the, the wash with the takeovers panel now. But I think people are going to are gonna draw conclusions based on, you know, whatever absolutes eventuate. But in reality, there's a, a, a huge difference in risk allocation the moment you take on leverage versus the sure thing that comes with a buyback. And people can kind of dwell over that all the, and we're never going to have perfect hindsight we're never going to be able to look back and be like this was the alternative but the alternative is all of that money gets reinvested via buybacks and you have less shares on issue <laughs> as i tweeted a few months before the deal based on the nine million shares that was trading a day call it a 10 percent daily volume buyback and the price at that time and that's before they halted the buyback uh, with the results. So this is before the price went from like seven down to five fifty or six bucks. It would have taken with all the blackout periods, it would have taken two years to deploy all the net cash without any free cash flow being generated back in at the current share price. Now I think we can you all have a dividend capability as well. You know what I mean? Like there are other ways to distribute to shareholders, but you know, the point's the point. But the optionality of that net cash sitting there with the buybacks and retaining that optionality instead of doing massive dividends. Right, give the years. optionality to me, the shareholder, to allocate however the fuck I want. <laughs> That's what a dividend is. <laughs> I sit with tax. I sit with div- taxable dividends, and I also sit and say um, that sometimes management teams have access to deal flow that I, as a shareholder, don't have access to. And we sometimes can, management teams are incentivized to execute on that deal flow, which might not be in my interest as a shareholder because incentives are, you know, structured poorly <laughs> and approved by shareholders at HS. Well, Americans don't, obviously don't trust shareholders <laughs> with their dividends because they don't give any out. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, eventually we're going to get to a world where we're not going to talk about free cash flow in this industry. We're going to talk about earnings per share. We're going to get back to a glorious time where return on invested capital and uh, creating value through deploying capital. I mean, we were all young pups at the, in the last boom, but we're going to get to a point where someone's going to look Mike Henry in the eye and say, hey, how much is it going to cost to uh, do a super pit at Philo? Lever up and do it. And someone like the koala who looks back at history is going to say, I dream of the Olympic Dam Super Pit concept of 2011. Like, here we go. Uh, like, Olympic Dam. You got to think about the sentiment and how this is all – we're going to go through all these emotions. And I think we're all young enough. We're going to go through it twice, maybe three times in our whole lives if we stay in this industry. It's just going to be this evolution where I'm very comfortable with the uh, this slug of capital that's gone out. They're going to put the term loan, the revolver in, the BHP deferred is kind of almost like a 0% APR, but it let BHP say they sold the thing with a $3 billion price tag, but discount that deferred back. Yeah. You, using BHP's balance sheet is great. 
they're still, I mean, the, the debt's still without a solution to date. And they need to refinance that bridge loan. And there's, you know, to the best of my ability, there's nothing that's been announced to the market on how that's going to be done yet. We'll see. Is, um, is, BH, is Olympic Dam going to work now better now that they've got the Oz Minerals assets to let's blend see, in? Let's see the plan. I remember there was a site visit I was not on back in uh, 18, 19, and they were talking about, oh, God, what did they call it? The uh, ERS, no. Uh, they had this whole plan they were going to do, and they were going to de Olympic Dam, and then they killed it like a year and a half later. I mean, classic example of great or I mean, they used to have this acronym SPOM. Uh, the M was for Meniere Escondida, the O was for Olympic Dam, the P was for Potash, and the S was for Shale. And the message from IR when they would come through New York was, SPOM, we know the four things we got to work on. What's the – and so Meniere Escondida was going to get solved by the third concentrator, which was like less than 12 months away. That was going to solve the ROIC, ROE there. Shale they dealt with. Potash. Well – well, when you're already in the depths of hell, keep pushing and go to the seventh circle and we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll get a beautiful book written about it. And who knows, maybe we'll end up making some money and get our capital back. But Olympic Dam's the last one. And uh, let's see how Oak Dam comes together. Let's see if uh, they do a two-step smelter. I mean, you can look at BHP's whole business now and say Escondida will fall from 1.2 to 900 in 27, 28. They're going to have to move a concentrator just because of how the pit's designed. Um, they're going to see which of their um, leaching technologies can help them maybe do more leaching versus having to still just do more concentrating and milling and crushing capacity. Um, so, you know, that's a big capital program. I mean, you then look at uh, Olympic Dam. You're going to have to say, how do you incorporate Oak Dam? Do you bring over the Carapatina block cave team? You got to do a two-step smelter. You got to think about how to bring all this together and try to unlock the value of that resource, which is, plagued them for years. Antamina is going to need a tailings facility uh, extension. That's a beautiful mine. Uh, and then what am I missing? I got Olympic Dam. I mean, Sarah, Colorado's being closed, if memory serves me correct. That's always a hot potato. But you can kind of see some big ticket items. And then you go, okay, where's the growth going to come from? But, Don't worry about the nickel. <laughs> The, the growth is a good question, right? I remember listening to some of the commentary out of Mark Henry and, and he talks about growth in the context of cost savings in their existing operations because it can have like, you know, 10% cost saving across iron ore can um, obviously have a much larger MPV impact than than any new project possibly could. Yep. Do you think, do you think BHP is still plagued by a lack of growth options as a, as a criticism in the market? I think iron ore is viewed as a cash machine. I think post the coal sale of Blackwater and Donia, you have a very world-class coking coal business. I, the only one I would probably rate higher is Elk Valley, and that's simply because even though Elk Valley struggles to hit guidance, when a cyclone hits Queensland, the business that actually gets the super profits is the Elk Valley quality coals out of British Columbia. Why? Because they're not in Queensland. Um, that's though basically a cash cow at this point. I don't, I don't see BHP doing big capital there. Potash, we kind of know the mission. TBD, what that turns into, if we're going to wake up in 15 years and find out they were right the whole time and some CEO who didn't make the decision gets praised for it. 
Copper, we can see them just trying to stay in place. But do you, with copper, do you think they're going to start moving on things like Casabel, Philo, things like that? I think that there's a great question to ask, which is what is the capital program for BHP and copper in the 2030s? Yeah. And what is out there that's worthy? But it's that. Those Casabel, for instance, those big block cave operations and Philo will be probably the same with that, the higher grade deep underground. You've got to get in early because it fucking takes years to get down there to to actually develop the extraction and the undercut levels. I don't know about oh, – look, I know some folks who are shareholders of Soul Gold who really like it. I've just never found the fascination with it and I think that uh, – but I think the optionality there – wasn't BHP and Newcrest both very furious with that, the, with the royalty? With mm. the royalty, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but, but there's it, not, but there's not much of them out there. Like you can sort of rattle them off those what you'd call a high grade copper deposit these days. Like for bulk extraction, there's there's not many of them. And does the court case go in there in Rio's favor at resolution, and maybe that somehow comes to the forefront again? Um, That's in the most, yeah. The the most I hate mining ju- jurisdiction going around, isn't it? It's a sensitive topic, but it is in Arizona. But I, th- I think, and that's, that's I the, think it starts at a kilometer deep, doesn't it? Or yeah, and you're going to yeah. and you're going to need like the world's most like massive refrigerator to pump air mm. down there because it turns out when the like when Arizona would be hot, wouldn't it? Yeah, eighty degrees yeah. at surface. So uh, you go down and uh, you think about the gradients, but. I, look, I think that's one of the reasons BHP's in Philo. I mean, you look around, you want these long-life ore buys with optionality. It's very simple. Like, having been to site, I think, Jose Maria, which is owned by Lundin, uh, that's where you'd put the plant. I mean, at the highest point of Philo, it's 4,700, 4,800 meters. You're not putting a camp up there. You regulatorily cannot. Uh, you're not going to put a plant up there either. But the plant, it makes sense to put the plant where Jose Maria is. You, Jose Maria could have a, if you look at the last mine plan there, there's a high grade starter pit in the early years, but eventually this all has to be brought together. And to the point about optionality, you got to firewalk with me, guys. You have, it's going to be 6 billion at least, which means given it's a porphyry in the Andes and using QB2, it's probably going to start with seven when it's all said and done. I mean, things happen and just nothing ever goes perfectly according to plan. You're probably going to overcapitalize a little bit with a little more float capacity because you want to think to the future when you're not putting a Jose Maria piece of ore through there. You might put something from Luna Ossia out of NGX. You might want to put the Aurora Zone out of Philo through it, but you're going to be potentially putting higher grade. That means you need to plan the float capacity for a higher grade. So I look at this and I say, okay, if Jose is Vicuña phase one, then the optionality of, okay, do you do a tunnel to the Aurora zone around hole 41 and then do a, like a panel cave or something like that. Uh, and then put that through the plant to improve the returns. Do you consider, you know, we have this thing running now we're going to strip away the top and we're going to try to do some big super pit. There's a lot of choices here with a resource of this size endowment layer on what's going on with Luna Hasi with those veins near the surface uh, but then Jose Maria has the approval to use aquifer, use Philo. You're probably going to desal. Who are we kidding? Um, so then how do we think about desal? 
well, Candelaria on the Pacific coast, because you're not going to run it from the Atlantic coast. Candelaria already has a desal plant and an easement right of way up to Candelaria. Are you going to put more modules there and then maybe run it by Casarones? You got to uh, pump it pretty high. You got to pump it, but I mean. It's like how many, how many thousand meters above sea level? Mate, if you're not willing to do the workouts, don't get on the field. Totally. I'm not saying the payoff's not worth it, right? But think about the optionality of everything I described here, but putting the parts together, if you're PHP, what else is out there where you go, hey, what's really going to move the needle in a world where I'm still an iron ore and coking hole company? But if you actually went to the market and said, we will over the course of the next 10 or 15 years deploy not a 10-figure billion dollars amount, we're probably going to put 10 plus billion dollars into this, but we think that this is the next Escondida we are going to make billions a year for several decades, probably a century. And this is what you pay us to do. We're the guys who can deliver these incredible assets. How does BHP get an outcome with Lundane Group, given the, the fragmented corporate entities and Lundane influence across the three? I think one of the reasons I'm very comfortable being a shareholder of the companies that are on the Lundin side of this, whether it's Philo, NGX, or Lundin Mining, is I think that that group understands the importance of maintaining control and are ready to explore if BHP is not willing to pay full value. I have every confidence in them that they will find an alternative pathway. And if they have to go it alone because BHP is not ready to pay the number and respect the value of a discovery. And who are we kidding? If you find a philo and you don't get rewarded for it, why does anyone go look for anything anymore? I think it's just, how do you get BHP or Rio to be honest and pay what you are willing to get paid? You have to have a viable plan B. I think maybe, maybe that's going to be the dumb M&A, hey? About BHP's growth, maybe they're going to be forced to dump a shitload in and they might put too much in. I actually think people will be very comfortable with that because you have a very respected group that's been working in the Vicuña district for 20 years who's thinking not about how fast we get our resource out there. I mean, they had an oxide pre-feasibility study on the oxide cap like seven years ago. And if you go look at where they would have put all the equipment, it would have been all on top of the porphyry. But they didn't chase that idea of, oh, let's go through the development curve. Let, they, they said, let's find the full potential of this district and not close off optionality, which was brilliant long-term thinking. I don't think that, I think if BHP is involved further in Acuna, Argentina, I think it's extremely well-received by BHP shareholders because you now know, okay, where are we going next? Is, is this copper thing definitely going to happen, this big copper copper surge supply shortage? What about the recycling? Well, is recycling of copper going to – no one ever talks about the recyclability of it. Scrap is a big part of the market stack. I think that one of the biggest questions is – I think the idea, Friedland's idea of you're going to need a telescope uh, to see this copper price, maybe for six months to a year, sure. But I think one of the more sober but constructive comments someone said to me recently was, Koala, we might spike to six bucks 
Maybe we spiked to seven or eight bucks, but long term, maybe it's four fifty, maybe it's five bucks. Let's not get carried away in dreaming the dream here. Because mm. actually, in the ironic thing, if you look across this industry, the base metals are sexy, but all the money's been made in the bulks. Oh, totally. In the intermediates. The operating leverage yeah. you get out of just like the OPEX efficiencies of rail. Just the scale <laughs> of them. the scale. Yeah. It's to your exact point on BHB being a, a coal and an iron business. Yeah. Where all the money comes from. I want to I have a chat. Uh, Koala, if 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 you, you care to open up about it, um, a bit about your career, and I'm mostly intrigued because of the hints you've you've let out in some of your tweets, and I respect your desire for to maintain your anon- anonymity or pseudonymity. Um, but to you know, to the extent you're willing to talk about it, um, you know, I can I can see from your tweets. One one of them, I can't find. I couldn't find. I was trying to dig it up, but one of those tweets, I remember you um, you let out that you had really only one non-work related memory when you were 22 to 23 as a junior investment banker at a, at a bold bracket. <laughs> uh, I, I remember reading it and having some PTSD of my own, but I couldn't, I couldn't dig it up. And I guess the question is, you know, how does, um, how does a gig as a, as a young guy um, in IB at a bold kind of shake you and other young entrants in our industry? Shape or shake? Shape. Shape. <laughs> shape. And, and look, Jay, and yeah, let's, let's not downplay it too much. JP Search are looking for some IB people <laughs> as well. <laughs> I think one of the most toxic traits I developed from that time is what is the point of starting something until you're close to the deadline? Because you could get something done a week before the meeting. The MD wouldn't look at it until 48 hours before and you'd redo the whole book. So I warn everyone I work with, <laughs> tell me when you want it. And back, don't back calc from that. And, when back, you start uh, it. and back calc out. It's get the Dixies ready. <laughs> and now there's protected days and everything. And those are there. It's a totally different world now with protected Saturdays and different mindsets. But, 80 to 100-hour weeks for two years, that was – I think it it shapes you and you learn what you're capable of from a work ethic perspective. I actually think with hindsight, it would have been – I would have been a better university student. I would have made more out of my studies, both from an academic perspective, but I think also from a social and everything else perspective. And, you know, I, I had fun. Uh, but I think I could have had more fun and had better grades if I'd gone through an experience like that for a year before university. Um, it's it's really hard to talk about what these two-year investment banking programs are like without coming across like an entitled prick because you are making more money living in amazing cities. Even if for those cities it's not a lot of money, you're still making incredibly good money for someone who just has an undergraduate degree and there's no woe is you and no one has sympathy for someone for working hard uh, for good pay. But I think, look, you, you basically have to put yourself to the job and you learn another gear about how to work, how to get to the point, how to craft arguments, how to think strategically 
but it's you can kind of tell who's gone through it if you really get into the weeds on the mining stuff. You, the way you can tell someone who thinks about it from like an underground mining perspective, an operating perspective, um, you can kind of see it in thinking about things. It's it's a tough one to talk about because I try to be sensitive to the fact that to get to work at some of these firms is an incredible privilege. It's an incredible learning experience. That being said, I'm proud of the fact that of the people in my cohort of the natural resources group, I was the last one to break down and cry. And that was 13 months into the job. But you just four nights with two all nighters and two nights of two hours of sleep. Um, yeah, I think under the rules of um, the rules of um, if you haven't slept for a long enough period of time, you are technically considered insane. And in Toxa, they, they reckon like lack of that much sleep is pretty much like driving around twice over the limit. I once went into the when I I done it was an all nighter, went home, showered, came back, kept working two hours of sleep the second night and all night or the third night. And I remember going in on the fourth day waiting for comments from like, it must've been like five or six senior people. And I went to the most senior one, said, I'm waiting on your comments. He's like, great. I'll give them to you Qual. And I go, I want to be very clear with you. This is the last few days for me. I am processing these, not in the order of the seniority of the people giving them to me. I'm processing them in the order they are given to me. And if they don't make it into by tomorrow, this is not my problem. And he looked at me and he looked in my eyes and I think he realized very quickly I was not in the mood. Don't to fuck be with this guy. <laughs> but, but, but then as Travis has explained to me and others, once you then leave that two-year period, do then you realize how much just on the hamster wheel you were? Well, until you actually are on the hamster wheel, until you actually have – done the hard yards, you're not actually going to either appreciate the normalization. And until you actually do the training, you're not going to be able to be creative and paint a Picasso until, I mean, what's that joke about someone asked Picasso for an autograph and he scribbles something and he says, that'll be $20,000. He's like, you just scribble your name. That took you five seconds. Like, no, ma'am, that took me 25 years. Mm. Like there's a honing your craft and learning these things, it's – look, we all were raised in a generation where we were told there's participation trophies. It's all going to be great. You're so special. Hey, luck is a huge component of this. L who you know, who introduces you to things, what doors open up about putting yourself out there. That is so important. It's actually being a social person that people consider smart and like doing business with, like working with. That is so much more important than just how smart you are now. But unless you're willing to try, work hard, you make your own luck to some respect. Like it's not given to you on a silver platter. And having done that, you then realize, okay, there are times you want to say, woe is me, or it's been a rough couple months, or I've gotten a few wrong in a row. But you got to know how to go home at 4 o'clock in the morning Take a shower, say I'm going to get three hours of sleep. I'm going to curse a few people out while I go to sleep. And then the next morning, have a cup of coffee, look yourself in the mirror and say, this is my sanctuary. 
Now I got to go back and do it all over again. It's a, it's an interesting experience, especially if you have a little bit of a privileged upbringing um, to kind of sit there and go, hi, welcome to adulthood. You are, and it's not just, oh, you got to commute an hour a day. You got to do some of these TikTok kids today going, oh my God, I get, I, I go to work at seven on the train and I get in at nine. I can't afford to live in the middle city. So I got to commute. I never see my friends. I don't have time to work out. I don't, I have to cook. Like it's, Look, life would not be fun if it was easy. You got to take the good with the bad. The same reason we've talked about assets, certain assets are special. If every moment of our lives was 99th percentile and Instagram worthy, none of it would be special. I think just we're in a world now where because we have so much inflow, and I think Twitter is different in that sense because Twitter, I think the way I've crafted it, and the way, Travis, I think you probably use it, is we use it as a tool for information, for learning. But so many of these more visual social medias, you put out, oh, my God, I just had this really special moment with, like, seeing something, be- a beautiful sunset with my girlfriend or doing something with my friends or seeing something amazing. Doesn't doesn't show the other 99% of their lives yeah, fucked. <laughs> do, well, do you know why that moment's special? Because compared to everything else, that is special to me. Now, you see a feed of that all day. You're going to start to think, why isn't my life a constant feed of those things? And you have to learn to love the process, love the special moments. And when you actually have one of those 100 out of 100 or those perfect years or those magical something 50 bags in 15 to 18 months, you also have to have the clarity to go, that was special. That was a one in 25 year event and that's probably never going to happen again oh, I'm due for one I, I will I will look for that I will look for the setup of that but you have to be at peace with the fact that you did not go into that thinking that's a 50 bagger in that short of time you have but you have to sit there and say there are these special moments you can't keep chasing the high but those are when when it all comes together that's that's something beautiful Kuala, you've spoken about the uh, the evolution of the buy side. You've touched on it in the past. You've got experience on the on the buy side at various different shops, and I'm keen to hear just to start with you, how you weigh up the uh, the differences between people working on the buy side getting assessed on a you know quarterly, annually, at most three year timescale versus how long it takes from exploration to getting one of these tier one projects that we talk about into production. So I think the first issue is, as you just pointed out, um, until you actually have a situation where you've had a Dwight Anderson rise up like Osprey did in the last super cycle, um, you're not going to actually get this duration to come back, even within the firms that actually are in a position to do it. So much of the hedge fund side is now dominated by these multi-managers. I mean, as I've said to some folks in real life, um, Ken, Steve, and Izzy have won hedge funds. What are these university endowments and these big allocation firms, what do they want to do? They want to pay for, for true alpha. They want to pay for high sharp ratios. And so a platform that says, we have this beautiful risk model. We tell our portfolio managers who we have screened all the talent on the buy side and we will pay for talent. 
a little to the, uh, the conversation about management compensation, uh, no problem paying for superstars that drive value, even if the con the compensation seems obscene because the superstars drive a disproportionate amount of the returns. Um, but again, on the other side with these fat pay packages, um, part of these risk models is they want two sharp products, three sharp. They want these incredible, I mean, some of these shops, if you're down 5% from your high watermark, you're gone. Maybe if you've been there 10 years, you have a little bit of goodwill, but it is truly a coliseum. And the whole thing is a lot of these funds, they have a risk management department but and a risk model, but they're not trading stocks. They're trading talent. So how do you actually where's – the, where's the capital that is going to sit there and say, I see a three-, four-year pathway, so we're going to get a triple? Or different prior life, but I was buying physical uranium and I set up the account, I set up the accounts at the conversion facilities in late 17 and early 18. Bought my first uh, pounds at 2150. We're sitting today in 2023. So that would have been a five, five and a half year uh, hold period. Now, Sprott Physical Uranium Trust has completely changed the spot market, but 2150 to 80 in five years. We would all crawl over naked glass for a return like that. But could you have held it for five years? In a multi-manager model, no. It's just a case of the idea of if you can make, get flip a coin and get heads 52% of the time, they just want you to flip a coin as many times as you can. I personally think that it's so different from how with, when you start to look at investing, it's actually about pressing your winners. When you, when you actually get one right over a lifetime of P&L, the truth is one or two trades will make up a shockingly disproportionate amount of your returns, both in, in the moment and what that capital allows you to redeploy into. And I think that's just not how the buy side is designed today on the public side actively. I think it's designed to, in a world where we had incredibly cheap capital, if you could never have a drawdown of more than 1% on the whole book, lever it up 10 times, get a hundred of incredibly talented portfolio managers, tell them if they lose 5%, they're fired. They make money. They get, if they make 3% gross for the year, they're a hero. Pay them 20% of the profits. It's just this amalgamation. It's, it's no longer about, you know, going and finding it, It's different from how we as we as a business, who do we think about at the brand names? Let's just go through WA. Like they've all made their money because of one or two brilliant calls that they didn't sell too soon and they pressed it. That's, it, it's not, it takes a long time to get rich flipping a coin a hundred times and getting it heads 52 times, not 50 times. Does that give you an edge now that you've left that model and you, you know, could uh, hold on to something like uranium for five years if you're investing your own capital? That I is. think so. I think so because actually I failed very quickly in that multi-manager model because that's not how I was trained. As I talked about in the first time, I kind of 
put myself in front of a microphone on a single stock spaces in January 22 to talk about Glencore, I, I think about things not in a three to six week, three to six month. I think about six to 18 months or 24 months, what can happen? That's just the nature of how I think. And I like to look at these things in a detailed, nuanced way. Think about the big picture of it all, not Hey guys, champions out champions up 30% in the last month. Labrador iron ore is flat. And a big reason for that is the flows of no one wants to invest in Twiggy's low grade iron and Twiggy's crazy. And Minres is a mixed bag of things. So we're going to back champion on the ASX. Whereas Labrador, Rio downgrade IOC guidance at the third quarter. So no one's really looking at that on the TSX. So champion, which is right next door to IOC at Bloom Lake, is up 30%. Labrador's flat. Okay. Well, that was a great trade. Now, do we flip that and pair it and go short champion, long Labrador? It's it's a different way of thinking about it. You're actually, it's playing poker with all of your peers. Instead of looking around saying, as everyone's playing poker and focused on that, how can I, how can I find the bigger trend here or find the new game or find where everyone's so myopically focused on the path dependent way, how can I figure out where we're actually going? The Perth way of thinking versus the New York hedge fund way of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> they are worlds apart. Guys, should we uh, wrap up with an overrated, underrated? No, I'll be rude not to, mate. It'd be hard to keep him to a sentence, let alone <laughs> a word. One word answers, overrated, underrated. I'm going to start with West Australian lithium mania. Overrated. Tech post deal with Glencore. Overrated. Oof. This might be a touch out of your wheelhouse given what you said earlier, but undeveloped gold ounces. Overrated. Vertical integration by minus. Be more specific. Bolting on downstream to upstream. In lithium. Overrated. Metal recycling. Overrated. This is bloody cynical. Investing in the DRC. Underrated. Oh, here we go. Tin. Underrated. Thermocol. Underrated. Backing. Uh, uh, what type of thermocol? Oh. Bloody. Newcastle. Yeah, go nuke. Go the index. What's that, 120? Yeah. Underrated. Backing quality management teams. Underrated. Uh, Rio Tinto's M&A capability. Underrated. <laughs> Alpha from Twitter. Underrated. ESG investing. Overrated. <laughs> Maddie, you got any? I, I never got to use this line today, but yeah. uh, something I've been working on, I think ESG inspires it, is a lot of bad ideas are good ideas that are just taken extremely way too far. And I think ESG is a great example of that. Love it. Uranium. Overrated. Oh, interesting. There we go. Fucking sensational, mate. Taking about a couple hours of your time. Appreciate you (laughs) you coming over exclusively to see us. I had nowhere to be. (laughs) 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 Mate, nothing like having a bloody tin with a fella from across the ditch. Like you said, tin is underrated. (laughs) (laughs) True. And and, And great to see we've had a great Australian animal flopping in front of your face all episode. Keep the mystery alive. Cheers, Koala.
Thank you, Koala. Good Cheers, on you, Koala. Oh, I better thank fine. the sponsors. Just to oh, yeah. easy for the edit, you know. How could we forget? Oh, mate, do you want to read the sponsors out, Koala? <laughs> <laughs> I'll save him the hassle. Ah, bring it over. I want to see. We're going to put it a bit of a twang to it. Mate, there, the, like, the blue one's there. Rip them out. You've got to put a bit of bloody mongrel into it, too. This podcast is brought to you by the <laughs> benevolent marsupial overlord, the Koala, along with DSI Underground. Supplier of ground support products oh, to the mining and tunneling yeah, industries. Just rip the names. Also, Terra Capital. Bondi. <laughs> <laughs> it's your turn now. I shouldn't have beat you to this. McMahon Mining Title Services, MMTS. Future Proof Consulting. Anytime Exploration Services. A news host, yeah. Seamus Murphy. KCI Site Services. KCI, yeah. JP Search. Brooks Airways. Oh, man, with all those lithium things to be built, they're going to make a killing. <laughs> uh, K-Drill. Perfy. And Zolanders. <laughs> Z-E-L. Hoderoi. money miners. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation, and needs.